newspaper and magazine articles as well as uh, television specials highlighted the following social problems that reflect the moral decline of our nation. It says there were stories that chronicled the various sexually transmitted diseases that are an epidemic rate in our country. There was an ABC special. I don't know if any of you saw the special, but there was an ABC special. It was entitled Jackie's Dilemma. I don't know if you saw this, but basically it was an hour-long special that focused on teen pregnancy, sex education, condoms, unwed mothers, and abortion. There were other articles, and I was handed this this morning. There were, you know, fresh voices from, I think this is from Parade Magazine. But the question was, is there a problem with teen pregnancy in, in this school? One gal says, yes, teen pregnancy is just getting way out of hand, and everyone wants to pretend it doesn't happen. Most of the guys in the school take no responsibility whatsoever for their children. I mean, half the fathers in the school have never even seen their kids. How do you, how do you know the guys don't take responsibility? She's, she goes on. Because you see couples who don't even, they don't even go out anymore. They don't even talk to each other anymore. They were like a class couple or whatever, and now they'll see each other in school. They'll turn their heads and walk from each other. They won't even speak to each other. It goes on. It says, uh, the school should help to prevent the problem. We don't have that much sex education at the school, and it shows. There's people running all over the place around here pregnant. It says, and it goes on. It says, I think people know about birth control. I just think it should be more available to them. Another teen. Well, what about the responsibility of teenagers not to get pregnant? Answer. Well, it is the teenager's responsibility, but, you know, I really think it should be made easier for us. After all, it's embarrassing as a teenager to go into a drugstore and say, Oh, I need a box of condoms. So people would rather not use them or go without them. And it's an embarrassment for a person to say to their parents, I'm sexually active and I think I should get on the pill. Or I need a supply of condoms. Some people can't talk to their parents about this openly. And I don't think there's anyone at school to talk to about it. If I was in that situation, I would probably first go to one of my friends to find out what I should do. Well, I would hope that we're not in the same category that as parents that we would be parents that our children would feel real confident and comfortable to come to to discuss any subject because I've met my kids friends and um, you know we were chap- we chaperoned a, a junior high school graduation the other night an eighth grade graduation and uh, I was the bouncer that's right <laughs> I saw you I saw you there and uh and I was the bouncer, and, uh, and I watched, man, I was, what I saw, I was just amazed. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want my son to go to anybody that I saw there that night to ask him about what we're going to be talking about this morning. But that's the whole purpose of all of this. It's to get instruction. You know, and at the heart of every one of these problems, if you think about it, unwed mothers, condoms, teen pregnancy, sex education, abortion, uh, homosexuality, date rape, incest, child molestation, all the things that dominate our headlines, at the heart of all of these social problems is the matter of human sexual behavior. It really boils down to that. It boils down to the whole issue of sexual morality. And that's what we're going to discuss Because, you see, God has created each one of us and has given us the freedom to choose. If you think about it, God has created each of us and has given us the freedom to make choices. With that freedom, which is a privilege to be able to choose, there's also a corresponding responsibility. Along with freedom comes responsibility. And we live in a society that wants all the freedom in the world, but they want no accountability and no responsibility. 
but you can't have one without the other. And so what the Bible teaches, and from the very beginning God has taught this, is that right choices result in God's blessings. Wrong choices result in the curse or the judgment of God. It's as simple as that. From the very beginning, God said, look, you have the freedom to choose. Right choices, I will bless you. Wrong choices, and I will judge you. And the same is true today. It hasn't changed at all. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, open it up and turn to Genesis chapter 2 to, to understand that this was God's plan from the very beginning. If you make right choices, I'll bless you. If you make wrong choices, you will pay the price. You will reap what you sow. Genesis chapter 2. And it's important to understand this as we lay the backdrop for what we'll be discussing uh, as we go through this morning. But in Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man that he had created and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. A command of God. You have freedom of choice of any one of these trees. You can choose. And the wonderful thing about it is that any choice of any of those trees was a right choice before God, and there were plenty of options that were available. He didn't say, the only thing you can eat is from this one tree. No, in fact, it was the opposite. He said, from any of these trees, you have the freedom to choose. And if you choose any one of those, I don't have a problem with it. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat from it, you shall surely die. God told the man, listen, I'm giving you the freedom to choose. If you make the right choice, it doesn't matter to me at all. That's a wonderful thing. But, but if you make the wrong choice, that day you will die. Now man's got a dilemma. He can either do what God tells him to do, or he can do what he chooses to do. But he has the choice. He has the freedom to choose. And it's interesting because we all need to understand that. We have the freedom to choose. Right choices, blessing. Wrong choices, consequences. And we all need to understand that. We all need to learn that. And then we go on to chapter 3. And here's where the trouble starts. I like the fact that the Bible says God commanded him. Verse 16. I was handed this cartoon this morning. It's cute. It's uh, Frank and Ernest. Okay, Moses is, is looking at the Ten Commandments and a voice comes from heaven and, and, and here's the voice. No, they're not require. No, they are requirements. They're not goals. All right? You got it? They're not goals. These are requirements. These aren't things that you shoot, shoot for and you hope you reach them, but if you fall a little short, that's okay. There's some flexibility. No, commandments are commandments. There's no option of falling short of those things. But in verse chapter 3, we find out what the problem is. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. And it goes on and talks about how they try to hide what they did from God, and they hid from him in the garden because they knew what they did was wrong. What a pattern of sin. And, and, and we need to understand that that pattern is the same today, particularly in the areas we discuss sexual morality. Because if you look at this, the word of God was clear. God commanded clearly. And the wonderful thing for all of us is, is that God's commandments are very clear. He clearly told them what was right. He clearly told them what was wrong. And then he allowed them to make the choice. God's word is clear. The strategy of the devil is the same today as it was from the very beginning. And that is to take what was clearly commanded by God and to twist it and to turn it and to turn it into something that God never intended it to be. That same pattern or strategy is true today. It says that the devil was more crafty than any beast of the field which God had made. He's crafty, he's deceitful. deceitful. What he wants to do is he wants to take what God says and he wants to twist it all around and we begin to, to uh, rationalize, we begin to, to uh, come up with reasons why and, uh, and the, basically the bottom line is it's counterfeit. And the result is simple. There's a plan, a substitute plan for what God has said to do and Satan comes up with a substitute or a counterfeit and the end result is always the same. If you read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, it talks about the pattern of temptation. And it's true, when each of us are enticed by our own lust, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. The pattern is the same. And the reason I want to bring that up is because we need to understand that when Satan offers a substitute or a counterfeit for what God says is right or wrong, then the end result is always the same. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he reaps, and you're going to pay the price. Hook, skin, get it, and fried. That's what I like to say. When we do our Rams Bible study, I always make this statement that sin is overrated and undercalculated. It always is. It seems good, and that's the deceptive part of all of it. But when you get into it, you go like this. The old VA commercial. Oh, how in the world? How in the world did I get down this path so far and look what I'm dealing with now? How did this happen to me? Easy. Because God commanded one thing. The lie came up, the deceit came up, the counterfeit came up, the substitute plan came up. You like that because you were enticed by your own desires and your own lust. You went that direction. You wake up one day and say, how in the world I get in the mess I'm into now? Very easy. You went from what God commanded to do and not to do, and you made a choice that was wrong against God. And he says, now you're on your own. You're going to pay the price. I don't know what kind of price you're going to pay. I don't know how severe you're going to pay, but that's up to the mercy and judgment of God. But every one of us, God judges our sin. So as we go through this, we see that the Bible clearly teaches in the area of sex, sexual morality that extramarital sex, if you're married and you have sex with anybody else outside of your spouse, then that is sin before God. If you are not married and you have sexual relationship with anyone, then that is sin before God. So it's pretty clear. You can't get around that. But there's a lot of substitute plans, there's a lot of counterfeit ideas, and that's the thing that we're all struggling with here. And this is the nonsense that we're dealing with when we read articles like this that talk about what we're going to do it, so let's try to dam have damage control. Let's try to sin wisely or sin smart. You know, I, I don't know how that is, but really, if you think about it, isn't that what we're saying? We're gonna, well, listen, if you're going to sin, well, then we're going to try to play God and eliminate the consequences from your actions. See, do you understand how, how silly this is? I mean, it, it would be like my kids coming to me saying, Dad, you know what? We, we want to be sexually active. We want you to help us to eliminate the consequences or the judgment of God in our life. Can you do that? 
How in the world can I do that? God is God. I'm accountable to Him too. We're all accountable to Him. I answer to Him. I'm not Him. I can't make that choice for them. I can't protect them from what God says He's going to do. And all I can do is teach them the truth about what the Bible says and pray and hope that they would understand how accountable they are also to God. I can't do anything about it for them, and neither can you. So don't deceive yourself either. So here we go. But what about all these so-called gray areas? Because the Bible's real clear in these areas, but we run into trouble, and what leads to these areas are all the gray areas of sexual morality that we find in our culture today. The last time we got together, we talked about the first one, and that is our thought life. The Bible clearly teaches, Jesus clearly taught, that the battle for sexual purity begins in the mind. What we continually think about, that is what we will ultimately do. In Matthew 5, 27 through 28, he talks about committing adultery in our mind, or if a man lusts after a woman to, to commit a sexual act with her. And he begins to ponder that and to dwell on that and to think about it or to entertain that thought, even think about it. Jesus said he's committed adultery already with her in his heart because what we think about, we ultimately do. And so he warns us about our thought life. And the Bible teaches us in 2 Corinthians to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But the second area or the second gray area of of sexual morality has to do with our eyesight. You know, it's fascinating as you go through the Bible and you do a study of those who have fallen into sin of any kind, particularly in the area of sexual immorality, you'll see that there's a pattern that develops. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says that King David was looking out his bedroom window where he was on the roof of his house and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, taking a shower. It says he saw her with his eyes, he coveted her with his mind, he entertained the thought of, wouldn't this be nice, she's a very attractive woman, this would be a wonderful thing to do, blah, 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 blah. And the next thing he said was, and then he sent for her. When she came to his house, he had sexual intercourse with her, became pregnant, and it snowballed from there. He sinned before God. He tried to cover his sin, just as Adam and Eve hid in the garden. David tried to cover his sin before God and before man and realized that he he tried the best that he could to do it, and God wasn't mocked by any of that. He had the, the lady's husband killed, Uriah, on the front lines, but the pattern was still the same. He saw, he entertained the thought, he coveted her, he sent for her, he took her, he had sex with her, and the damage was done. What Jesus clearly warned was, when he saw her, he didn't take his thought life into captivity to the obedience of God. He began to entertain thoughts that weren't pleasing to God. Therefore, he followed through with his action, and it led to sin. Hook, skin, get it, and fried. And we'll talk a little bit about that whole pattern. But basically, the Bible teaches in Matthew 6, 22-23, that the eyes are the window of our mind. The eyes are the window of the mind. What you see is what you begin to think about. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, verses 25 through 27. What you look at is what you will think about. And it's an important concept to understand in the whole area of sexual morality. What you see, you will begin to think about. Proverbs 4, look at verses 25 through 27. We read this. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. 
turn your foot from evil. God warns us to let your eyes look directly ahead. You know, it's interesting. It, it's not hard to illustrate this. Um, I, I remember seeing a movie a while ago, and it was kind of done in fun, but God has used it in my own life to illustrate a spiritual point. There's a movie that Chevy Chase is driving down the street in a, in a, uh, in a station wagon filled with his wife and his kids, and they're going to Wally World. And uh, he's driving down the highway, and as he's driving down the highway, he sees out of the rearview mirror a Ferrari coming up beside him. And as the Ferrari gets closer, he begins to realize there's this good-looking blonde gal who happened to be Christy Brinkley who was driving the Ferrari and drives up alongside the station wagon. So Chevy's trying to be real cool, as cool as you can be, driving an old 63 Ford station wagon with a, with a, you know, a car full of kids and your wife. And he was kind of giving it this, you know, and the, and the wife was kind of nodding off and the kids were nodding off. And he was looking in the rearview mirror and you could see basically what was going on. And she pulls up next to him and he's kind of pulls his glasses down, gives it the look like that. And then they start playing this game. They're driving. She drives faster. He drives faster. He stays up with her. He's looking at her. He's checking her out. He's doing this. And all of a sudden, you see her go. And he goes. And there's a tractor trailer coming straight head on because he had pulled up next to her in the wrong side of the road. And as you think about the whole story, what's illustrated is that God says, you know what? Let your eyes look directly in front of you. Think about it. How many times you're driving down the road and you're looking at somebody next to you? You know, see what Solomon says and the word of God says is don't let her speaking to a son, telling him and giving him counsel. Don't let the eyes of an adulteress catch your eyelid. Don't make eye contact with her. Don't look at her. Look straight ahead. Keep your gaze straight ahead because there's nothing good that will come out of that situation. Do You see the wisdom of God here. And I learned in my own life, don't look at another person in any way that's displeasing to God. Don't look at a stewardess. Don't look at a waitress. Don't look at someone as you're driving down the road. Don't make eye contact. Where's it going to go? It can't go anywhere but trouble. Keep your eyes and your gaze straight ahead. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would never gaze at a virgin. Job, a married man with ten kids, said, I made a covenant before God that I will never look upon another woman with the desire to have sex with her. I made a covenant with my eyes. See, the Bible warns us very clearly that we have to be careful what our eyes see because what our eyes see enter our minds. And once it's in our mind, we have a choice to make whether we'll take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ or we'll let that thought run rampant and go in a direction that's not pleasing to God. That's why pornography, pornography is so dangerous. And we went into great detail a few weeks back on the danger of pornography. But I want, you to, I want you to listen to a letter that was written by a young man who was captured up in pornography. And it was in a book called Christians in a Sex-Crazed Culture. He writes this. And I want you to pay attention because I want you to see the pattern that developed in his life. He says, it all started when I was six years old. And I would sneak peeks at our neighbor's Playboy magazines. I became so enamored with the female anatomy that I used to cut out advertisements from traditional magazines and carry them with me. Adults thought it was cute. They thought it was funny that I had the desire to look at pictures of nude women. It was just further evidence that I was all boy. This seemingly innocent practice continued for several years, but everything changed dramatically when I was 12 and I discovered sexual self-stimulation. It was like going from cigarettes to heroin. Even though I had some clumsy sexual experiences early on, they were frankly disappointed compared to my sexual fantasy life. 
In my mid-teens, I was no longer just looking at pictures. I began to read Playboy Advisor and Penthouse Letters, and they helped me to develop what I call my fornication philosophy. He looked, then he began to read, and then he began to think, and he began to develop a philosophy. It says, after meeting a girl at age 16 who would later become his wife, he continued his letter. Even though we enjoyed lovemaking with daily frequency at 16, my appetite only grew more and more insatiable. After a couple of years of marriage, I became obsessed with the need to act out the experiences that were so common in my reading. When those desires went unfulfilled, I turned to X-rated movies and films to supplement my magazine habit. My mind was so filled with these images that even when I was making love to my wife, my thoughts were continually flooded with other images. After a while, I find myself occupying private booths in the X-rated movie arcades, vicariously participating in sexual acts that would never be fulfilled at home. I began putting enormous pressure on my wife to grow with me sexually or that I would leave her. I also had several hundred magazine mistresses along with regular trips to the video arcades just to keep my interest up. But nothing satisfied me sexually. Nothing. Sounds like fun, huh? Torture, bondage, a prisoner to his lusts, a man who was married but couldn't enjoy the sexual relationship with his wife. This isn't an uncommon situation. This letter speaks volumes for many of us who are listening today. I know it and you know it. Fortunately for this man, he received help. After five years, five years of struggle, of victory and failure and victory and failure, he finally had enough strength to take all the pornographic materials that he had all the magazines, all the videos, everything that he had, he took them out, he burned them, he got rid of them, and thank be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he received victory from this sin and the bondage that he was in. And today his marriage is a blessing. And it's a wonderful story. And it's true. But it also brings up a subject that many of us aren't comfortable to discuss, but it's something that was a pattern and it was a part of his lifestyle. Because he said, when I discovered sexual self-stimulation, then everything started to change. And it was like it took off. It was shot forward. Boom! Now I'm into a world I don't understand, that I don't know how to get out of. And it's, it's gotten so far beyond my control, I don't know what to do about it. And that's that so-called gray area of masturbation. It was an integral part of his struggle. And I think it's an important thing that we discuss. Several years ago, I was discipling a young guy who was in his early 20s at the time, and I was trying to help him grow spiritually. He had only known the Lord for a couple of years. We were meeting. We were going through some things. And yet, there always seemed to be something wrong in his spiritual walk. I mean, there was something that just wasn't right. And, and you know and I know if you've been in a situation like that where it's like, you know, there's something wrong here. And you pray about it, and you ask God for insight, and you ask for discernment, and you're meeting with somebody, and you're talking to them, and you know looking at them, and you know talking to them, and you know what what they're saying. There's a struggle that's going on, but for some reason, they just don't feel comfortable enough to share it with you because they don't know how you're going to respond to it. And they're struggling with this. And we met for months after month after month, and I was like, what in the world? I can't understand it. I said, God, whatever it is, give them the freedom that the next time we meet, that he'll just be able to tell me what in the world's going on in his life. 
And God answered the prayer. We got together and he said, I've got something to tell you. And I've struggled with it. He didn't even know how to say the word. He said, you know, you know the big M? I'm like, the big M. The big M. Like M&M. You know, I get dealing with kids too. Like M&M's, no, M&M's, that's not it. And he finally said, no, I, I, I'm struggling with this area of my life. I'm struggling with sexual self-stimulation. See, I'll use that term or phrase because I know that some of you know that you're not supposed to talk about masturbation at church. <laughs> and I don't know where you came up with that, but I'm going to tell you right now that we need to understand what the Bible has to say about every area of life. And it's sad to think that someone could be struggling in an area of life and that we, as God's people, who say we have insight into the thinking of God and have an understanding of what the Bible teaches, would avoid any topic. God doesn't. And so we went through, and as we began to study the Bible together, we began to realize that the Bible gives some definite guidelines to help us to identify whether sexual self-stimulation is sin for you in your life. We could debate forever whether it's sin. I've read and studied everything that I can. I've looked at what the Bible has to say. I've heard what people like James Dobson have to say. I've heard what other psychologists and other people have to say on this whole thing. And the only thing I can tell you is that I'm a lot clearer on what God has to say than I am at what everybody else has to say and what everybody else feels about it. We can debate whether this is sin forever, but I'll tell you what, we can look at certain guidelines to discover whether this is sin for you and to help you counsel people around you as to whether it's sin for them. You know, it's important to realize that there are many myths about sexual self-stimulation and they fill older Catholic and Protestant writings. Some of you have heard the jokes, you know, if you do it, you'll go blind. You know, or something else will happen to you physically, it'll fall off, or, you know, it'll damage your sexual ability later in marriage. And, you know, you've heard it, I've heard it, you know, you'll lose your mind, you'll go insane. I mean, you've heard all these things, and that you pretend, you sit out there and pretend like you haven't. That, that cracks me up about you people, but, <laughs> but you've heard it all. You know, I coach, I coach, you know, Little League, and, and I hear kids that are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old making jokes about it. So I know it's something we all know about. And I also know it's something none of us are real comfortable to discuss. So as we look at this, I think it's important to understand the guidelines. Let me give you five guidelines. And you think through with me on what what, uh, the Bible has to say. It's important that you recall the definitions of sensuality and lust from the last time we were together. Let me remind you. Sensuality and lust. Gratification of the senses or the indulgence of appetite. Devoted to or preoccupied with the senses. And an intense sexual desire. Masturbation definitely fits that description. There's no way you can get around it. Can you practice that without engaging in sensuality or lust? Ask yourself the questions. Number two, Jesus warned us about our thought life. And I think this is the key to understanding the problem. When a a person is practicing this in their life, I want to ask you a question. What are you thinking about? Who are you thinking about? Can you practice this self-stimulation without having vivid pictures or images in your mind of something? And i got to ask you, what is it? What is it? Well, someone will say, well, you know, I fantasize about my wife. Oh, or I fantasize about my husband. Oh, nice try. You know, you want to keep it within the confines of what you know that God's saying is okay. But I want to ask you a question. Why don't you just obey Scripture in 1 Corinthians 7 says it's your duty to fulfill those needs with one another. 
It's not necessary if you're married. You follow this? What are you thinking about? Number three, consider the sanctity and the intent of a sexual relationship in marriage. Without any question, this is a substitute. This is a counterfeit. To be able to achieve the same physical sensation that those who are engaging in a physical activity that's pleasing to God, it's trying to have what they have without any of the commitment and without the sanction of God. Ask yourself some tough questions. Number four, it's also very self-centered. If you think about it, it doesn't involve anybody else except for maybe what's in your mind, and that's another problem we've already talked about. But in Ephesians 2, 3, listen to this. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The Bible says that non-Christians live in a world that says, please yourself. There's probably nothing more self-centered than that. It sounds good, but it's, you know, if you stop and think about it, it's different for God's people. You know, we have this argument that, well, it doesn't harm anybody else. But you know what's interesting to me? God, while He cares whether we harm other people and what we do, you know what's a wonderful thing about God's love? He cares whether we hurt ourselves. Isn't that great? God cares whether you harm yourself. You say, but it doesn't involve anybody else. But it involves you. And God loves you. And God cares about you. And He's concerned whether you're going to hurt yourself. He's concerned about you. You say, well, you know, I can run on the street. And that's not going to harm anybody else. Yeah, but it may kill you. What kind of argument is that? God cares about you. That's a great, great thought when you think about what you struggle with. And the last thing is this. It puts you in bondage. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.12. It says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If this is a practice in your life, and you go through this checklist in your mind, what do you think about? Is it pleasing to God? If it's not, that's wrong. If it's self-centered, that's wrong. You go down through it. And if it's taking control of your life to where you can't stop even though you want to stop, then the Bible says you've been mastered by it and that's sin and it's wrong. Personally, I've come to the conclusion if you think about the guidelines that the Bible gives, there isn't room for masturbation in the life of a Christian. Because I don't know how anybody can practice that in their life without violating some of the guidelines that we've already learned on the definition of sensuality and lust, and on what we look at with our eyes or what we think about with our mind, or whether something is self-centered and self-serving and self-pleasing, or whether it honors God, whether we become bondage to it, it becomes sin in our life. It's very difficult to understand how anybody could practice that without struggling in those areas. So we need to ask some very difficult questions. My conclusion is that we need to study the Word of God. If it's something you struggle with, then you need to look at passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 that deal with immorality. Then you need to look at Galatians 5, 19 or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. These are areas that deal specifically with guidelines for that type of behavior. And then you ask God to affirm in your life what the right thing is to do. You let the Spirit of God lead you to do the right thing. 
because it's not a matter of whether I can convince you or not. I'm just here to offer some suggestions as, as we find them in the Word of God. You study it. You deal with it. You look to Him. You ask for guidance and deliverance. And you trust the Lord. Another gray area is the dating game. Da, 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 da. And, um, you know, the, the whole concept of the dating game is really fascinating because, see, the dating game isn't something, it's not a biblical custom. See, they, they had it worked out pretty good. It was like, okay, you're my daughter, here's who you're marrying. You know, God, bring back those days. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't that be great? Man, it sure takes a lot of the other stuff away. You know, oh man, it was, it was, it was a very simplistic approach to life. But the, the problem is in our culture, it's not contrary to the Bible either. So it's not a biblical custom. It's not contrary to the Bible. And, you know, in our culture, uh, dating for, you know, pleasure or potential marriage partner has become kind of a way of life. And uh, we need some guidelines on this. So let me just give you some quick ones because I want to get into something else. Number one. If you're single and you're dating, or if you're a parent or grandparent who wants to help a young person that's single and dating, and you want to offer some sound counsel, think about this. Number one, if you're single and you're dating and you've had sexual experience, you need to determine what additional restraints you need to put on your relationship with another person. Uh, Counseling and talking to people that become Christians, what I would suggest always is this. If you are a person that's become a Christian recently then I would suggest that you just stop dating for a while and you spend some time studying the Word of God and studying what God has to say about love and marriage and sexual behavior and really get rooted in the Word of God before you jump back into a situation that you've already failed in because that was part of who you were as a non-Christian and you need to understand now that God has a different life for you. So you need to understand that. If you're a Christian and you've fallen in this area, then what I would suggest is that you go all the way back to ground zero, and that's the next step, and that is either start double dating with people or going out with groups of people because it takes the pressure off of getting involved physically with another person. Don't put yourself in a situation where the pressure's on to be involved physically. If you're with other people and you're doing group things, then you get away from that whole environment and that mentality, and, and, and which leads to sequential dating, which means basically this. You know what? Why don't you start pursuing intellectual and spiritual interests first because the physical will take care of itself at some point downstream. That's why I think it's important when a person goes out on a first or second date, you've got to be careful about even kissing. I mean, why get involved in a physical relationship with someone that you've only met one time? You know, and the mentality in our culture and the scary thing, and we talked about it when we talked about that survey a few weeks ago where, where kids were saying, if I take a gal out for dinner, I should be able to have sex with her. Duh. You know, and, and, and as, a, as a person on a first a, a man or a woman, what I would suggest is that you respect one another physically and that doesn't even become an issue in your dating life and that you develop spiritual and intellectual uh, sense of, of commonality before you even think about anything physical. The physical always takes care of itself. See, here's a, here's a shocking uh, awakening that you discover when you get married. That I discovered when I got married. That is that there's more to life than just having sex with your spouse. What a shocking revelation. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, how much time do you spend? And this is a fair question. I mean, you ask anybody who's married, how much time do you spend in a sexual relationship out of the total time you have together? 
And if you jump the gun and everything is physically oriented and leads you to get married, all of a sudden you realize the only thing you have in common is that you like to have sex together. By violating the commandment of God, everything gets backwards. Now you're married and you find out that, you know what, you have no other interests. It's like you go, man, you know, right, ladies? It's like you got 23 hours and 50 minutes of every day that you got you know, you to deal with with this guy. And it's like, man, what are you going to do with all the rest of that time? Right? Yeah, see, the ladies know. They know. It's like, man, what in the world? Now what are we going to do? You hope that you'd be like a friend. You'd hope that you'd have something in common. You'd hope that you'd have some like interest, that you could go places and do things and spend time together. And, and there'd be like more to life than just, oh, what are we going to do to fill up the rest of that day? And then, gee, that's only today. What are we going to do tomorrow? Oh, my gosh. You, you see how crazy it gets? I mean, that always takes care of itself. It's part of the relationship. It's part of that unity that God allows. And it's part of the physical enjoyment that comes with it. But it's not it. It's part of it. And the scary thing is when I say stuff like this, I realize how old I'm getting. <laughs> that's true? What's happened to me? They say we're evolving. The world's quickly coming to a close. You know? And it's like, but that's the way that it is. And, and, and so we need to understand that, which leads to obviously the next thing. You know, people say, well, well, what's right and wrong as far as physical in, in a dating situation? And you get people say, what about petting and necking and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, what's right and what's wrong? And, you know, you sit down and this is the line, and that was the line last week. But, man, I can't stay behind that one. I'm moving it this way. And, and the line keeps on moving, and that line keeps on moving. And it's kind of like, see, that's the problem that we deal with. And you know what happens? Once you start to, to prolong embracing, prolong kissing, you get, start, get all riled up. You know what? That line is like, oh, that's the last thing you're thinking of. See, you, you need to develop strong convictions about what that line is, way before you ever start making out with somebody because you'll never see it. You'll never see that line ever again if you wait to try to draw, generate convictions once you get involved with something. And those are the people who say, how in the world did this happen? I would say, and I wish the Bible would say this, and I say this to my kids, I wish the Bible would say, don't kiss, don't embrace, don't touch anything on another person. <laughs> Now, when you know, it's a, you know it's, a, it's a parent talk, and I realize that. It's like, don't touch up, don't rub against, don't get close to, don't get near. Man, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I watch these guys dancing, eighth grade dance. It's like, holy smokes, you know? It's like, they should have had a fire hose at the door when they were leaving. Come on out, next, here we go, whoa, there you go. I mean, really, think about it, isn't that true? Oh, man. It's like, don't... Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, disco. No, no disco. I was there, man. I saw it. Don't be telling your folks. Oh, no, mom. He's going, not me, mom. I was doing the disco. I was like, disco that way, disco this way. I know. I know. Don't give me that now. I saw you there. Hope I didn't ruin your night. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all right. Where are we? Anyway, I, I know the Bible doesn't say that. You know the Bible doesn't say that. But man, I would sure encourage you to consider if you're single and dating, don't even think about it. All right, here's the good part. Oh, that wasn't bad. But here, here's the good part. 
Let me give you some practical suggestions because really it boils down to this. How in the world, in a world that is so physically oriented and promotes such physical activity, how can a Christian remain morally pure before God? That is a great question and it's a valid one. And really what it boils down to is the Word of God is, 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 is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and you know what? For training in right living. How to live right before God. Let me give you some ideas. Number one, it starts with holiness. You know what holiness is? It's a subject that churches don't even want to teach because it's a term that's not user-friendly. But let me tell you something about holiness, folks. It's taught all throughout the Bible. God is real concerned about holiness. He says that we are made holy in the sight of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're presented before God holy and blameless. The only hope for anyone who struggles in sexual immorality or any other sin in their life is that they acknowledge their sin before God, they realize they can't do it on their own, they get down on their knees, and they ask God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to forgive them of their sins, and they turn to Christ for forgiveness. That's what holiness is. It's being able to be presented before God, holy and blameless on the day of judgment. We are foolish when we try to teach a world that doesn't know Christ to live a life that's morally pure. While they may, because of the consequences of sexual activity, it's talking of AIDS and venereal diseases and all pregnancy and abortion and all the rest of it, while we may practically be able to deal with them and say, here's the warning, you know what the, the, the findings and the, and the statistics indicate? That none of that means anything to anybody. It doesn't change sexual behavior. Why? Because it's behavior and it's not character. There's no transformation of the spirit. There's no alivening of the spirit of God within the life of a person. When a person is spiritually dead, they don't understand the things of God. It's foolishness to the natural man. God's wisdom is foolishness to the unsaved person. We have to start with the basics, and that is simply this. Presenting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Helping them to understand that they're dead in their sins, they're on their way to hell, and the only freedom they'll ever get is when they acknowledge their sin before God, they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, and they acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. Then the Bible says that they are born of God, and the Spirit of God indwells them. The Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit, one, the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. To be able to control yourself in the physical area of your life because God has given you the power to do it by the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God in the life of a person, it's almost impossible to be able to live a life that's morally pure before God. And even if you give up sex for the rest of your life and you die without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you still pass go, you still go to hell. Isn't it? I mean, it's a sad thing that we're teaching the world, but let's get right, folks. We need to start with holiness. But there's a second aspect, and that is this. Peter commands us in 1 Peter to be holy, for I am holy, says God. There's a pursuit of holiness, Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. There's a pursuit of holiness that all God's people should not be content until we pursue living lives that are right before God. If you're struggling in the area of any sexual behavior that's wrong before God, the Bible says to pursue holiness and don't settle for anything less. To live a life that's morally pure before God and to pursue it with all of the energy that you have within you, trusting God and turning to Him and the Spirit of God within your life for self-control and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. That we should pursue holiness. We need a personal walk with God. 
We need to spend time with God. We need to spend time in His Word. We need to understand His character. As I study the Word of God and I'm brought into the presence of God and I see how holy it is and what His character is all about and I realize how wicked and deceitful sin is in my life and as I stand before a perfect God and I have a reflection of my life looking at His standard of righteousness and I realize that there are unclean ways in me like Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. There's things wrong in my life, Lord, and I trust You and I turn to You and You expose them so that I can ask for forgiveness forgiveness and I can turn from them. We need a personal walk with God if you're ever going to have victory in your life against any area of sin. I would suggest that you memorize scripture. That you memorize scripture. The psalmist writes, Thy word, O God, I've hidden in my heart so I don't sin against you. The word of God, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Bible says, don't be conformed to this word, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You need to learn how to think right. You need to learn how to think like God thinks. To see life as God sees life. To see our activity as God sees it. And not be fooled by the deceitfulness of Satan who says, don't worry about it. Everybody else is doing it. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter. What matters is if what you are doing before God is right. Bible memory, memorizing scripture. If you're struggling in a certain area of life, if you're struggling with anger, resentment, bitterness, lying, stealing, drinking, your sexual behavior, if you've got a problem forgiving and forgetting, then I'd say you just sit down and you make a list of every scripture verse that deals with that topic. You sit down and you look in the back of your Bible at your concordance. You get a concordance out and you list down. What are you struggling with, sir? What are you struggling with, ma'am? Then you sit down and you list every verse that God approaches that subject and you begin to memorize those verses. You begin to take them into your heart. You meditate them on them day and night. You know what the Word of God says in Psalm 1? That you'll have stability. You'll be like a tree planted by water and nothing will move you. No deceitful wind of doctrine, no counterfeit philosophy will move you from the truth of God. Joshua 1.8 says when we meditate on the word of God and we don't deviate to the, to the right or to the left, that God says that we will find success in everything that we do. I'll guarantee you that if you're struggling in an area of your sexual behavior before God and that you are, you are a Christian, that you are convicted about it, the more the word of God you have in your life, the more upset you're going to be the more guilty you're going to be, the more frustrating it will be to try to continue to live a life that's not pleasing to God. Because the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God will cut through the chase and just pinpoint you right where you're struggling and tell you, stop it. Turn from it. Repent from it. Ask God for forgiveness. It also means this. You know what? As Christians, we need to be called into an account to make certain decisions in our life. We need to say, you know what? I need to draw the line. I need to choose this day who I'm going to serve. Am I going to serve myself or am I here to serve God? In the area of sexual morality, I can't think of a better choice than to serve God because the downside is devastating. And that means you draw the line. I am resolving today. What is today? June what? 12th? I'm resolving today, today, I'm going to live a life that's pleasing to God. Today, I'm going to stop looking at pornography. Today, I'm going to go home and get rid of any junk that I have in my house. 
Today, I'm going to stop looking at other men or other women with the purpose or the desire to have sex with somebody other than my spouse. Today, I'm going to stop dwelling on thoughts that are not right before God. Today, I'm going to take captive every thought that I have to the obedience of Christ. Today, I'm going to stop if I'm dating any physical activity that has led me to fall in the past. Today, I'm drawing the line. Today, I'm saying I'm not going any further than this. Today, I want to start pleasing God in every area of my life. Today, I will start to pursue holiness. Today, I am tired of conforming to the world, but I want to be transformed by a renewed mind. Today is the day of the Spirit, the Spirit of God says. Today, I'm going to stop thoughts that lead to conviction and guilt. Today, if I struggle with masturbation, today is the day that I stop centering everything on myself. And I center my thoughts and my intentions and my purposes and my being and my body on God and trust in Him that He can fulfill every perceived need that I think that I have. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the only day that you have. You may not have tomorrow. And I'll tell you what, I'd love to be called home the day, the day that I say, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you today. I'm forsaking all the garbage in my past. I'm forsaking all the activities that's not pleasing to you. But today is the day I resolve in my heart to draw the line to walk after you. Today. Number five, fellowship and accountability. Fellowship and accountability. I believe the strategy of the enemy is still the same today as it always has been. And that's to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. You don't want to be around other Christians when you're struggling with sin in your life. You don't want to be around the Word of God. You don't want to be having a personal walk with God. You don't want to be having devotions in the morning when you've got an area of your life that you know is not pleasing to God, man. Because God will deal with you. So what do you do? You hide from your Christian friends. You don't come to church. You don't go to Bible study. Hey, let me tell you something. If you're in a small group, you've got a shepherd group, and people, for one reason or another, stop showing up, you better get with them, and you better start asking some tough questions. What's going on in your life? Now, I know we're all busy and other things going on, but, and don't assume that because somebody's not coming to your shepherd group that they're living in sin somewhere. And, you know, and we're going to send out investigators because everyone's busy. But I'll tell you what, you better be praying and you better be discerning. You better ask God to give you wisdom and insight as to whether there's something wrong in that person's life spiritually. So you know what happens? Here's, here's the flip side of this. We get this kind of junk all the time, church. Well, you know, that's pretty legalistic, always following up on people. No, that's pretty biblical, actually. You know, it's pretty biblical when you consider two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one who will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift them up. That's pretty biblical, actually. I'll tell you what, when we do Bible studies, I know, I know when guys don't show up Bible study, I know something's up. Man, I know it. You got people come, they come, 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 come. Oh, not there anymore. Oh, not there next week. Call them up. How's it going? Oh, it's fine. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. A couple weeks later, you know what? Save it for someone that has stupid written across their face. All right? What's going on? And you know what? Just like my friend who finally had the confidence and courage to say, I'm struggling with masturbation in my life. I would hope that every one of us have someone we're accountable to and we can share anything that we're struggling with. I'm thinking about cheating on my spouse. I'm single and I'm thinking about going to bed with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm struggling with this area of my life. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. I want to be honest with you, man. It's been a real struggle. Hey, you know what? That's what fellowship and accountability is all about. That's why the church, the body of believers, has to be a place of accountability. We have to continually devote ourselves to fellowship. If you think about it, that's what it's all about. Number six, Bible study, sex, love, and marriage. I mean, if it's an area you're struggling with, study the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about love? Read 1 Corinthians 13. 
What, is, what does the Bible have to say about marriage? Ephesians chapter 5. What does the Bible have to say about love and marriage or sex? Read Song of Solomon. I mean, just read the Word of God and fill yourself with it. Number seven. You know what? Here's some practical advice. You need other outlets. I mean, you know, it was the old joke about, you know, taking a cold shower or going out and do some physical labor, you know, go dig a hole in the yard, fill it back up, you know, I don't know. You know, there's old jokes, all kind of stories. But, but the reality of all of it is in Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and gained favor in the sight of both God and man. That there was a balance to his life, to his existence here on earth that said he continued to grow in wisdom intellectually. Sometimes we need to read. Just read the Word of God. Read books on the subject. You know, they continue to grow in stature physically. You know, some of us, when we're not physically fit, our minds get sloppy and we begin to think about things. We have too much free time. Man, go out for a run. Some of you may never stop, but that's all right. Because the Bible says flee temptation. So you keep on running. You keep running until you're so tired you can't think about nothing, but I need to sleep. You know, and that's okay. Other outlets, we need to do that. And the last thing and the most important of everything we've talked about is failure and forgiveness. We sung a song, Psalm 51. It's a psalm of failure and a psalm of forgiveness. King David, a man after God's heart, fell in the area of sexual immorality. He committed adultery with another man's wife. He was wrong before God, and he realized that. And you know what? There are many of us who have done many things that are wrong before God, and we realize it. And the wonderful thing is about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that He forgives sin. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you think you've done. I don't care what you think God can't forgive. But let me tell you something. God is always there, willing and ready to forgive you when we come to Him. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all of my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done evil in your sight, that I may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice and hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me, O God, a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Folks, we need to understand something about God's forgiveness. Number one, if you're guilty of sin in your life, you need to acknowledge it before God. You know what? So many of us, we say, Oh God, I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry, but you gave me these desires. I'm sorry, but I really love her. I'm sorry, but we're going to get married. I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry, but, I'm sorry. You know what? You know what David said when he was broken before God? I have sinned. My transgressions. My sin. I have sinned and I have done evil in your sight. That's a broken heart. I have sinned. Not I have sinned, but I have sinned. I agree with you what you're saying about my behavior is wrong. I've sinned. And I acknowledge it before you. No excuses. I'm guilty before you. And anything you do to me is just because you're a just God. Acknowledge your sin. Number two, you need to show signs of repentance. I'm sorry, but I keep doing the same thing. 
No, we need to bring forth fruit of repentance. Matthew 3, 8 says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. You know what it may mean? It may mean breaking off a relationship. It may mean saying, I'm drawing the line, and until we get married, we're not having sex. It may mean saying, you know what, I've got this little thing going on the side, and you know what, I need to just stop it because if I'm acknowledging my sin before God, I've got to break it off. It may mean leaving the job. It may mean moving somewhere. I don't know what it means, but if you want to be right with God, you're going to be willing to do whatever God requires you to do so that you'll stay right before Him. But there's got to be fruit of repentance. You've got to stop doing it. Repentance is changing your mind. I'm wrong before you, and it's going to affect the way that I live my life. I am now going to live right before you. Number three, you need to acknowledge God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of it. We need to acknowledge it. You know what David said? Hey, if you say I'm clean, I'm clean. If you wash me with hyssop and you make me whiter than snow, I'm whiter than snow. Now the world may continue to condemn me, the world may continue to hold it against me, I may suffer the consequences of my actions and it may follow me the rest of my life. But you know what? If you say I'm forgiven, I am forgiven. And I trust you and I believe you and I don't care what it is. I don't care if you had an abortion. I don't care if you've had an affair. I don't care if you've got some sexually transmitted disease. I don't know what's going on. I don't care if you're single, just having sex, you have multiple sexual partners. I don't know what it is and I don't care what it is. That's between you and God. But if you acknowledge your sin before God and you turn from it and you stop doing it, He says you are forgiven. Then guess what? Believe Him. Because if you don't believe Him, you're saying, I don't believe you can forgive my sin. And if he can't forgive that sin, how can he forgive the sin that would keep you out of his presence for all of eternity? He can forgive your sin. And when he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Man, don't ever let Satan deceive you into believing that you're not. Don't ever let him take the joy out of your life. Because you know what David's final thought was? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your generous spirit. And the kicker of all of it is this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. Wow! Think about it. No matter what you've done. If you confess it to God. He forgives you of your sin. And when you accept that forgiveness and you walk in confidence and faith knowing that you're forgiven, the world will be attracted to a God who can forgive anything. And they will be attracted and sinners will be converted to you. Oh, man. That's worthy of a big old amen. Well, that was real big now, wasn't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the forgiveness that we find in Christ. God, help us to be men and women of God who choose to follow you, who pursue holiness in every area of our life, who don't compromise and make room for sin in any little corner. God, that we would be holy and blameless before you. We thank you that we will never experience the consequence of sin for eternity because we put our faith and trust in Christ. Now we just pray that we will continue to live in the boldness of your spirit and according to his power as he empowers us, as he indwells us to live lives that are pleasing before you. God, there's never an excuse to say, I cannot for the child of God, because you have enabled us to be able to do anything that would be right before you. We just thank you as we've experienced this forgiveness and this joy is restored in our life, that we will move on and realize the deceitfulness of sin, the devastation of it all, and that we would be people as we grow in maturity, that we would continue to look to you and your word for guidance in our life. 
that we continue to trust in you. And as your word says, that we would taste of the Lord and see that you're good. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.